When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Eric Metaxas is the number one New York Times best-selling author of Bonhoeffer, Letter to the American Church, Is Atheism Dead, Martin Luther, and several other works. His writings appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the New Yorker, and he's appeared as a commentator on CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. He's the host of the Eric Metaxas Radio Show, a nationally syndicated program that's heard on about 300 outlets, and it's broadcast, of course, right here on TBN. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure and my joy. Thank you. And you have the longest bio ever. I mean, it, it's amazing. You've written so many books and you do so many things. Well, I'm here's the issue. I'm scattered. You can't, like, sum it up. You can't say he's done 12 of this or 50 of that, you know. I've just done so many different kinds of things that it's challenging. Well, and I'm so glad that you do because you teach us so much about so many different topics. And I want to talk about uh, one in particular but I think we're going to be touching on, uh, on, on both of these books. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of what's, what's in each I one of these? I wish I could. No, I could. <laughs> yes, I could, and I will. All right, first of all, Martin Luther, it's a biography of the man that I consider the most influential person in 2,000 years apart from Jesus. And that was not by intention. He didn't set out trying to be influential. But his story, when you understand it, you realize he was a church, uh, he was a, a monk who ended up bringing about what we call the Reformation, and it's an earthquake that affected everything in the world. That was not wow. his intention, but it did, well, that's what the gospel does when it's freed from its prison, you know, its religious prison. So it's, it's an insane, true story, and we're all affected by it, whether we know it or not. So that's my biography of Martin Luther, which came out on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which was 2017, so just a few years ago. Letter to the American Church is a brand new book, uh, and it's short, but it is an ominous warning to the Church of America today that we are being silent in the face of evil, in the same way that the mm. German church was silent in the face of evil in the 1930s. A lot of pastors and leaders have good reasons for saying, well, I don't want to get into that, I don't want to be divisive. And, and the German pastors effectively did the same thing. And when they realized what their silence had brought about, it was too late to speak up. Yeah. And it's my thesis in that book that that's where the American church is now. It is obviously deadly serious. And in a weird way, it relates to the story of Martin Luther. Of Martin Luther, because yeah. here you have history uh, po potentially repeating itself, and yeah. we need guys that are gonna be able to speak up like Martin Luther did. Martin Luther, it's, it's a big book, and you're no stranger to writing big books. You, you've written the, the classic um, biography to, uh, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor, uh, martyr spy, yeah. uh, who was alive during World War II and the Nazis and yeah. Hitler and all of that horrendous stuff. Yeah. And then you wrote a book about William Wilberforce as well, uh, the British abolitionist. Yeah. Uh, with Martin Luther, there's so many um, stereotypes about Martin Luther, but one of the things that we know is that he was a German monk who influenced his faith early on in his life. And how did he become a monk? Well, it, 
again, of, of all the books I've ever written, the Luther book was the most fun. Because I was saying, you know, writing is hard. People kind of have this, like, image of, like, you know, you're on a, at a mountain lake under the pines, you know, drinking a cup of postum, and you get these ideas, and you write them down. And it is hard work. But the story of Luther is such an entertaining story. It is such a wild story. He was a crazy man who, you know, lived out his faith like a maniac. And when you, when you learn about it, you can't help but be entertained. I mean, he's a larger-than-life... Mm. You know, crazy in the good sense, like crazy in a, in a good way. But so, so his whole story is just uh, like mythic. But the problem is when you have somebody who's as famous as, as he became, you know, over the centuries, these legends develop. Yeah. And, and so I, I thought, you know, the least I can do in a book is tell the truth, right? So debunk anything that's not true and whatever. And so the story that always gets told is that you know, out of the blue one day when he was like, you know, 21 years old, he was uh, going back to the law school where he was to study the law. And he's in the middle of a thunderstorm. He thinks he's going to die. The thunder and lightning is, is around him. He, he like hits the deck, hits the dirt and just says, St. Anne, if you save my life. I'll become a monk, right? Because Saint Anne was the patron saint of miners, and his father was in the mining business. But you, you know, as I did my research, I said, "Look, this is ridiculous. Obviously, this is an incredibly brilliant, thoughtful person. So this wasn't like out of the blue. He blurts right. this thing out and thinks, thinks like, well, 'Well, I'm going to go to hell if I don't do what I said, you know, in that moment. So I, I better become a monk.' That's not true. Luther, he gets sent off to these places to go to school, and it seems." to be God's plan, that he keeps bumping into religious influences, people that get him thinking mm. about this stuff. So this had to be going on over and over and over again. And in that moment, when he's in the middle of the thunderstorm, he, he literally thinks, I'm going to die. And so this is kind of the moment of truth. And he says, you know, St. Anne, if, if, if you save me, you know, he's really talking to the Lord, I, 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 will, I will become a monk. So, so yes, he then does what he said he was going to do. But you always get these ideas, and again, it's all through the book, these kind of stories, like, well, it just kind of came out of the blue. It didn't come out of the blue. This, this, this had been in his mind for many, many years. What is God's real plan for me? What should I do? Hmm. What are some of, the, some of the myths and misconceptions about Martin Luther? I ended up coming up with seven of them, and it's sort of like a pastor sermon. The seven misconceptions, I didn't plan it. I just counted, and I thought... There, there are all these things about him that everyone knows. If you go on a tour, they tell you this and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And every one of them is either not true or half true. So the first one is that he's the humble son of, of a miner, you know, like a peasant, okay. like baloney. His father was a successful businessman, you know, number one. Okay. Um, number two, his wife escaped the nunnery uh, and that she was hiding in a herring barrel. So you can imagine like a smelly fish, fish barrel that she was hiding in there to escape the nunnery, right? And you hear this everywhere. And I had to really work hard to get to the bottom of it. Like, is there any truth to this? And I, and I discovered, in fact, no, that definitely never happened. It says that he threw uh, an inkwell at the devil. The devil appeared to him when he was at the Wartburg Castle hiding, translating the... Uh, the um, the New Testament into German, and it, the, everybody says the devil appeared to him, and he 
through his inkwell at the devil. And if you go to the room, which is still there today, you can see that like this on the wall, you know, whatever. Total baloney. He was speaking metaphorically. Now he's saying, I'm fighting with my pen. I'm fighting the devil with ink. But he didn't mean I'm he didn't throwing, throwing my ink, ink at, at the devil or whatever. So there's, there's a bunch of others. More of them will come to me as we talk. But I love getting it right, like for history. We don't yeah. need to gild the lily. We don't need to like blow smoke. Just say exactly what happened. One of the misconceptions, let's say, is that he visits Rome in like 1509, 1510, and he sees all the corruption and that leads him to wanna, you know, uh, reform the church. Again, total baloney. I mean, he wouldn't, he couldn't even conceive of reforming the church. Um, what really it boils down to is that he, like many others before him and since, wanted to make things better. And he, he realized that I am a doctor of the church. I have a degree in Bible. I am teaching at the seminary in Wittenberg. I have responsibility before God to speak the truth and to correct error. But like most whistleblowers, they think, well, I'm going to be rewarded for, you know, sending this, this uh, problem up the chain of command. They're going to be like, thank you, Martin Luther, right? Exactly the opposite happened. He, uh, he wanted to have, it, it starts out so innocently. He says, you know what? I, I'm an academic. And here's what we need to do. We've got this big problem. The worst part of it is called, in, is this idea of indulgences, right? I mean, which again, starts out almost like a good idea and which we've lost in the evangelical church where, you know, if you've done a bad thing, you don't just say, okay, you're forgiven. It's like, okay, maybe you need to make it up to the person you, you did that to, you yeah. know, uh, or, or do something. So they said, well, what if you give some money to the church or you, you know, you do community service, you try to make it up. So it starts out like, if you, if you yeah, give some money to the church, it, it proves that you're repentant and you, you want to do something self-sacrificial, sure. right? Okay, but it turns into this like money-making monster. And Luther sees this and he says, we need to deal with this. So he says, what do we do? Well, I'm an academic. Let's have a debate, a theological debate, and we'll talk about this. In-house. In the theological, yes, in the theological debate, we'll come up with some resolutions, and we'll send it up to the chain of command, you know, to Rome, and maybe somebody can, can see the error and we can fix this, right? So what does he do? And again, this is all so innocent. This is, to me, this is like comedy. He basically posts a notice, like, you know, there's gonna be a debate on this date. And the notice has these provocative points of, on the issue of indulgences, kind of to provoke people into like, I want to go to this debate. Because right. we're gonna, okay. Yeah, this sounds interesting. But he writes the whole thing in Latin. Why? Because he only wants the, his fellow academics and clerics to read. This is not for the common person the common to get person. them chit-chatting. No. So he posts it on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, which is like a bulletin board. You know, if you want to yeah. give guitar lessons or like your cat is missing, you would put the, like, the little memo up you know, on that bulletin board. So this right. was not some special, but it's always portrayed like Martin Luther put this document on the, on the church right. door. in the face to, you of know, the right? church, and here I am. And there's all, anyway, the, but the bottom line is he didn't know that some people are gonna read it and translate it into German. And because the printing press had been invented not long before, they just thought this is really interesting. So suddenly and- they're making copies and everybody's reading it and it starts this controversy and he's thinking, uh-oh, like I didn't want this to become like, like I'm being disrespectful to my superiors and stuff like that. So it, it's like the cat got out of the bag. 
And every time he tried to clarify, like, wait a minute, I didn't mean to say this. Yeah. He would say something else that was kind of like provocative. And it got worse and worse and worse. And it's kind of like the way King George dealt with the 13 colonies. Pope Leo dealt with this in the worst way possible. Yeah. They basically decided foolishly, like, we're going to crush him. And, you know, by doing that, and, you know, this is always, this is the way history works, right? We see it in our own day. You know, when, when you see excessive force, it can go two ways. That's right. The excessive force can crush what it wants to crush, or it can make everybody so angry that the fight becomes greater. That's right. Right? And so that's kind of what happened with Luther is that the, the, the Pope foolishly, or his, his, his people foolishly said, let's like squash this. Yeah. And that was the worst thing they could have done. And they made it worse and worse. So Luther became more and more invested in speaking up for the truth. Eric, I'm so excited to be talking with you because you, you've studied this so much. And, and um, I, I love the way that you tell these stories. Most people think that October 31st is Halloween. Yeah. This is the time we dress up like cowboys and Indians yeah. and princesses and ghosts and goblins. Yeah. But I dress in a Scottish kilt with bagpipes and I carry around with me the, uh, the, the documents that the Covenanters signed with their blood. Why? Because it's Reformation Day. Wow. What is well, October 31st have to do with yeah. Reformation? Well, it's, it's kind of simple. Um, basically, uh, it is said, this is not really true, but uh, that Martin Luther nailed this document we referred to, the 95 Theses, in a sense trying to provoke debate about indulgences. So, so he, he nailed that document or put that document, I don't think they had staplers back then. What, did he tape it? But he put it on, yeah, exactly. He used like a glue gun. He, he basically put it on the bulletin board of the church, uh, the castle church in the city of Wittenberg, right? So they say he did it on October 31st, and so that's Reformation Day, and that's all Saints Day, all Hallows Eve, the day before, whatever. So, and that's where we just, get Halloween. That's where we get Halloween, which is all Hallows Eve, all Saints Day Eve, blah, blah, blah. The bottom line is, everybody says, October 31st was the day Luther did that. Fact is, probably not true. It, the fact is, we don't know exactly what day he did it around there someplace, maybe within two or three weeks, um, even more significant than posting this document with, you know, effectively the announcement of a, an academic debate that we're going to have to talk about indulgences. More significantly, he mailed a letter to the Archbishop of Mines who was behind pushing this indulgence stuff in this area of Germany. And so that's not a very dramatic image of him like mailing a letter. So we always have this image of Luther right. nailing the 95 theses to the door. And like, for all we know, he literally used a bucket of paste, right? For all we know, he didn't even do it himself. He might've handed it to the church sexton and said, could you please post this for me? Or we're like, we, we really don't know. But, but the impact yes. was as though right. he had a giant muscular arm that's and right. a big giant the, spike that in, just crushed the in entire retro, church. That's right. In retrospect, that's how we see it because we realized that was its effect. That was its effect. But it took a long time from the day he did that for it to kind of work its way through. And finally, it escalates to the point where Luther is summoned to the German city of Worms. 
pronounced worms, but we say worms because the word looks like worms, so we say worms. And there was an annual kind of, um, what do they call it? I mean, they call the term was a diet, uh, which is a weird old-fashioned term, but it, it really meant like uh, a, a, the gathering of all of the nobles in Europe, all of the uh, ecclesiastical nobles, the archbishops, the cardinals, yeah, yeah. the money, the power. They all would gather around once a year, and the head of the Holy Roman Empire would be there, and they would effectively... You know, it would be like Congress gathers and we're, we got some rules, I mean, some laws we have to pass and some things, some business we have to deal with, maybe lasts a couple of days. So he was summoned, to Luther, to answer for what he had done. To show up and, the, and the, the Pope was going to send his representative there for this confrontation. Uh -oh. But I got to be clear, they really wanted Luther to go to Rome. If he had gone all the way to Rome, actually to face the Pope and the Pope's people in Rome, a lot of the Germans around Luther, including the German nobles, said, he's not coming back. He's going to be burnt at the stake wow. or whatever. Wow. We need to conduct this on our turf. So his local prince kind of pulls rank and says the Pope needed his vote in something that was coming up. This is so political, it's sick. You're already into act two of the movie. I mean, you're getting to yeah. the really good part of the Diet of Worms. Yeah. But, 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 but let's go back just a second and yeah. say, what were some of the key arguments that Luther was making? We talked about indulgences. What, what other beef did he have that he said we need to deal with? Okay, at the end of the day, it all boiled down to one thing. Because these, these are all arguments about this and this and this and this. But right. at the end of the day, it, it is focused down to one thing. Luther said... It is possible for the church leadership to make mistakes. It is possible that in a council, in an official council of the church, mm -hmm. it is possible they made a mistake. It's, it's, it's a lot like yeah. the Supreme Court, so right? Say, you, you Where you say the Supreme you're, you're Court is God. the law of the land, they just, but in a couple of places in the past, Dred Scott decision, we would say Roe v. Wade, they got it wrong, right? Well, that was how the church operated. They said, we have these councils and things and we have the Pope and stuff. And they basically had the attitude like, we can't get it wrong. Everything we do is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Don't even mention that conceivably we could have made an error. But Luther says, well, we've got a problem because according to scripture, because he's going to, he was a student of the scripture when almost no one was a student of the scripture, which we really won't get into. But he says, if there at any point is daylight between what I'm reading in scripture and what the church is officially saying, we need to fix that. We right. can't have any daylight. What the scripture says and what the church says has to match. Has to line up or somebody's wrong. And so Luther is hoping that they will say, oh, you, you have a good point. A Are point. we, where's their daylight? And let's fix that. Just the opposite happened. Their response was, excuse me, shut up. If you say that again, like, you'll be burnt at the stake, effectively. In other words, don't right. even suggest that the church might have difference with the scripture. How dare you? Yeah, who are and you? And Luther, you know, came to the conclusion that, listen, I, because this, this was real, right? He realizes that I could be burnt at the stake, uh, which is a little bit more painful than a firing squad. Uh, he's facing this. But he knew that before God, if he goes along with what they want him to say, he could be facing the fires of eternal hell. He said, I don't see 
how it's possible for me to kind of give you what you're looking for and say, I'm sorry, I recant. They wanted him to say revoco, and you know, in the, in the uh, Latin, you know, right. I revoke everything that I've written and whatever. And, and so, right. first of all, he explains, he, he says to them, wait a minute, you're telling me to revoke. They, they, it's almost like they wanted, it was like a plea bargain. This, this is like the modern day cancel culture on steroids. I mean, like really on steroids. Yeah. Like recant, get down on your knees and apologize yeah. or, or you're you die. done. Yeah. As in you die. Well, that's right. So he, but so as a man of conscience, he said, you know, he, in other words, he was trying to reason with them but, and they refused. Like he was trying to say, well, um, I mean, first they wanted him to renounce all of his writings. They had all of his writings on a table, like 40 books yeah. or whatever. And he, he says, well, first of all, what, you know, what are you talking about? Which of the writings? Because m many of you have praised some of these writings. So what, what specifically, you know, he's trying to get to the nub of right. it. Like, what's the thing? They refuse to go there. They're like, we're not going to be taken in by your schemes and your sophistry and your argument. It just yes or no. Yes, you know, that kind of a thing. Right. Bullying him. So he has 24 hours to come back. He comes back 24 hours. And then he basically makes the famous stand at this place in Worms, Germany, at this diet with all these assembled uh, dignitaries, power, money, right. amazing. He says, based on everything I know, all I can say is that if there is a difference between, you know, what the church is teaching and the scripture, you know, I have to, I have to stand with what the word of God says if I'm forced to choose. And then he says, here I stand, I can do no other. In other words, I'm stuck. I don't really have yeah. an option to tell you what you want, you know, because of his fear of God. He says, this is what I have to stand on, the right. word of God. So now they don't know what they're going to do, right? They tell him, okay, you're going to be, you know, you, you go back to Wittenberg uh, and we'll see how we're going to deal with you, okay? But the prince, who's kind of protective of Luther and Luther thinking, uh... I, I may be murdered on the way right. or I may, or once I go to Wittenberg, they're going to come get me and take me to Rome or whatever. So right. his local prince has a scheme and says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You start making your way home, you know, according to plan. And hardly anyone knew this. It was like, there was like five people in on it. You're going to be kidnapped by unknown brigands. They're going to come, they're going to, you know, Stand, hold a crossbow, you know, at you and threaten you and take you out of the wagon and they're going to kidnap you and take you someplace and nobody's going to know where they're taking you okay. or who it was. And it was all a setup. Go with them. Total setup. This will save you. To save him from what they thought was going to happen. So he is spirited away to this famous castle called the Wartburg, which is a beautiful uh, a castle uh, in the middle of the, the hills of... Um, uh, either Saxony or Thuringia. I always forget where it is on the border, but just this remote castle. And even the people at the castle were not told who he was. He was basically brought there. He was told to grow a beard because he mm. was a clean-shaven monk with the tonsure, so the top of his head was shaved. So he lets the tonsure grow out. He grows a beard and he dresses like the knights, the Junker that would be at the castle. So he is no longer Martin Luther, the monk. He's now in disguise. Wow. And so there's a lot this of crazy, funny, amazing stuff in the story, which is why I en enjoyed writing the book. Crazy, amazing stuff. So he is hidden there. Hardly anyone knows who he is. And in his spare time, he decides, you know what I think I'm going to do? 
uh, I think I'm going to take a crack at translating the entire New Testament into modern German, German of the day, so everyone can read the Word of God. Yeah. This was a, very, this was a pretty revolutionary thing to do. Erasmus, uh, the great uh, scholar, had just translated or, or really rediscovered the original Greek of the New Testament because everything had been translated into Latin. And so there's all these layers and stuff, but, but it's kind of in the pure Greek. And so he has access, mm. Luther has access to Erasmus's uh, Greek. And he now does something. If he had done nothing else, he would be famous for this. He by himself in the course of, I think, 11 weeks translates the entire New Testament into the German of the day. And he did such an amazing job that to this day, many Germans use that like, you know, like the King James. I mean, it is like the definitive German Bible. And he, he pulled that one off in less than three months by himself with a cool pen. Like, wow. insane genius. But it really wasn't a great reformation of the church of that day. It, why wasn't it called the Great Schism? He kind of split. Well, the religious people. Okay, the reason it wasn't called the Great Schism is because the Eastern Church and the Western Church split in what's the year? 1054, around 1054, when when Constantinople, what's today Istanbul, became the head of the Eastern arm of the church, and Rome became the head of the Western arm. That was the first. So that was really. The schism, what we call the schism, it's called the Reformation because he really said, we need to bring the church back to what, what God's idea is for it. And he had seen how far the corruption had gone in all these centuries. And so it really has to do with so much. But he, yeah. he finally became convinced, really to cut to the chase, that Rome had become inescapably corrupt. He, right. In his own experiences, he realized, you know, I got to drain the swamp to, to use different vernacular. Like it is so bad that we, we can't, we can no longer proceed. And he understood that the answer was to bring back the plumb line, which was going to be the word of God and get it into the hands of the people. Yep. Off camera, you were, you were mentioning this, this very unknown but fantastic story about something happening at the Diet of Worms. Okay, it's not very unknown. It is totally unknown. I discovered this. When I, just, when I started writing this book, here's the bottom line. Uh, I start writing the book and I, I go to the beginning and I say, okay, he was born on this date, okay, November 10th. Uh, he, because they feared hell, this is kind of part of the, the narrative of the whole book. There was such a fear of hell rather than love of God, you know. So he, he's baptized instantly. The next day he's taken to the right. church, no which is still there. And he's baptized. And what's the day? Oh, it's the feast day of St. Martin. So it's St. Martin's day. So they name him Martin. That's why he's named Martin. And I thought, he's named Martin after St. Martin. Who's St. Martin? I'm thinking, who's St. Martin? Let me look it up. I actually felt a nudge of the Holy Spirit. Not kidding. It's like one of those things where it was just kind of weird. So I look up who is St. Martin. And I realize, oh, it's St. Martin of Tours who was alive, you know, around 400 A.D. And what's his story? Well, his story is uh, 
that he became a Christian, but he was serving in the Roman army. And because of his faith, there was a battle and he, he refused to go into the battle. He said, I'm now a Christian. I cannot, I cannot go into this battle. It's like Hacksaw Ridge, right? I can't go into the battle. So for him to take this stand against the Roman Empire because of his Christian faith is a very scary, brave thing. And it's because of that that we remember St. Martin of Tours because he took this stand. Mm. He was not killed. He lived and he's famous because of this thing that happened 400 something AD, okay? And um, it happened at a place uh, in those days was called Borba Tamegos where he took the stand against the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. This whole thing happened, okay? This sounds like a foreshadowing. So I look it up and I'm thinking to myself, it's kind of weird because Luther took a stand at the Diet of Worms against the Holy Roman Emperor and Empire, very similar in, in all these ways in, in Worms, Germany. Uh, and Martin of Tours, 11 centuries before, took a similar stand at this place called Borba Tamegos. Not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. Where's Borba Tamegos? I look it up. Modern day Worms, Germany. What? I said, this can't be right. Like I'm being punked. There's no way this is possible. Are you serious? I mean, it, 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 it's such a freaky miracle. You talk about God being the God of history. So the fact that the man that, he, that as an infant he's named after took this stand for which he became known as a saint of God, where did he take the stand? In front of the Roman Empire, a place called Worms, Germany, before it was Worms, Germany. 11 centuries later, Luther takes a very similar stand in a place now known as Worms, Germany. You can't make mm. this up. If you don't see that as a miracle, can somebody please wow. explain to me? Like, it's, it's completely insane, but it's true. And when I discovered this, I realized no one has ever noticed this before. So I do believe it was the Lord leading me to look this up because I said, this is almost like proof that th this, the whole thing is of God. How else do you see it? And you've got so many great stories like that in, in, in your book. You talk about Luther as, as quite a character. He's pious and serious in the beginning, very afraid of hell because of yeah. his sin. Yeah. And as he gets older, he becomes very sort of loud, boisterous. He's almost a bit of a joker. Yeah. Uh, you talked about how he translates the Bible into German so that people can get a hold of it, understand where his ideas and arguments are coming from. Uh, but there's also an interesting twist for this monk, and that is he was married. Well, How did that, happen? that was after he became a monk, after he was no longer a monk and realizes that a lot of uh, those who were monks or a lot of the nuns who were nuns, th they had just kind of fallen into this w w way of life and they felt trapped in it in a way. Um, and so he begins helping, uh, especially there's, there are a number of nunneries where when you're five years old, you're sent to the nunnery and these women felt trapped, you know, that they didn't, they hadn't chosen this for themselves. Yeah. So he helps some of them escape and ends up marrying one of the former nuns who escapes. So the, so the monk marries the, the, the former nun. This is, you know, this is, I don't think I'm the only one. I, this is starting to uh, remind me of Nacho Libre. Cause there you've got the, you've got the monk who falls in love. It always comes the, back. It always comes back to Nacho, to Nacho Libre. Libre. It, then he introduces congregational singing to the church. See, this is, is the thing. Is he starts, yes, he starts trying to think. This is going from Nacho Libre <laughs> to The Sound of Music. With exactly. kids and singing. Exactly. 
this is uh, amazing. No, actually, it really is a beautiful thing because he starts thinking about how can we, and this really gets to what I write about in Letter to the American Church and what I talk about. How can we live our faith? How yeah. is it not... It's Just not, a bunch of not, rules and It's not and meant to be some little robots. religious thing. It's supposed to fill my whole life. My whole life, every part of my life mm. is supposed to be about living out my faith. And so Luther realizes, like, hey, singing beautiful songs is a way to underscore what the Bible teaches, you know. So, so he starts, you know, writing hymns and he picks popular songs. He doesn't say, that's the devil's music. We got to do our own. No, he says all good things are of God. That's biblical, right? So there's a beautiful melody that's mm. used as a drinking song for drunks to, to, to sing. Let's take that and let's redeem that yeah. and put lyrics in it and, and make it something that we sing in the church. And so we begin to memorize, you know, good doctrine through singing. And so he introduces congregational singing, which by the way, now they do in every single Catholic church in America, you know, or in whatever. It's like it, you, you start That's realizing that the these, things, so much. these things find their way, uh, you know, through history because he didn't just want to, um, you know, break away from the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. He, he wanted to, to bring faith in Jesus to everybody. He wanted people to, to understand you, you, you have this privilege to read the Bible, to understand it for yourself, yeah. not to come up with your own interpretation, which, you know, that's right. one of the problems. If you that's put the Bible the in everybody's hands, somebody's gonna come up with, you know, Scientology or, you know, whatever loony thing and say, well, that's what the Bible says. Of course, that's the danger. But the greater danger is for nobody to know the Bible and to That's nobody right. be able to live the Bible. So he put it in the hands of everyone he possibly could. And what I say toward the end of my book is that when you free the gospel from this religious prison, it affects everything. It affected America would not have come into being if it had not been for Martin Luther, which is an amazing concept. He, he basically, I mean, if you really think about it, if we, if we know that the gospel and the scriptures have the answers to everything. Mm -hmm. But it takes time for these things to work their way through history. I mean, why wasn't slavery abolished in the West until, you know, Wilberforce and, and after that? Why did it take so long? All of these things take time. It's, the, it's, it's you know, the Lord has to tell us when we get to heaven why he chose to do it this way. But religious liberty, the, the ability for people to follow their conscience. I mean, mm -hmm. when he says, the word of God says this, and you're telling me this, and I have to follow what the word of God says because I fear God more than, more I, than I fear you. Yeah. And, yeah. and so a lot of these ideas that we kind of take for granted now, right. the Lord brought them into history through Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah. And, and I love this idea that he took songs and brought them into the church and then infused those songs with good theology. Here we get congregational singing yeah. and hymns. And he even transformed the way that we looked at Christmas. Isn't that right? He, I With mean, the it, lights it, and the tree there, over there, Bethlehem. There is, and there is so much that that what that comes out of Luther that's amazing. But again, you know, you you think like, okay, so Luther fixed everything. He figured out, oh, it's by faith. It's not by works. You know, that's right. But the problem is, because we're human beings, we can take every good thing and destroy it. So by the time you get to Bonhoeffer, who is a very strong Lutheran, right? Bonhoeffer realizes in 1930, early 30s, right? We have misunderstood this idea of faith and grace. In other words, Luther was right to bring it out and to correct the idea that we save ourselves by works. Mm. But once you're saved, 
you're supposed to live out your faith right, by works. Results in good so work. works are not bad. But the German church by the time of Bonhoeffer had kind of forgotten this. It's like, it's all about grace, man. And it's like, what, what kind of grace? Do you understand grace was bought by Jesus on the cross? It's a very, very, very infinitely costly, beautiful thing. Are you living your life in response to that or are you just taking it for granted? Hmm. And so his message, Bonhoeffer's message 400 years later is that, you know, you, in fact, Bonhoeffer gave a famous, I write about it in the new book, Letter to the American Church. It was on Reformation Sunday, 1932. He is chosen to give a sermon at this famous church in Germany. And he basically says to them, you're making a mockery of the faith of Martin Luther. You're worshiping Martin Luther. You're not worshiping Jesus whom Martin Luther worshiped. And he kind of lets them have it in a sense because he could see that this misunderstanding is leading to the rise of the Nazis and he's trying to warn them. And so it's kind of interesting to me that these things come round and round. You don't just sort of fix it and it's done. Yeah. Human beings need every generation to That's constantly right. revisit these things. As I, as I would say today, much of the American church uh, has adopted a lot of the bad theology that Bonhoeffer was trying to point out yeah. you know, uh, 90 years ago. So it, it, th these aren't just old stories, like they have application now. Eric, you say in your book that we owe a huge debt to Martin Luther. Yeah. Some people, they're, they're not even familiar with who he is. Yeah. Maybe Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther the monk well, gave the first, us so much. The first thing I have to say, which I say in the beginning of the book, is that Martin Luther King Jr., who we all know, got his name from Martin Luther. Martin Luther King Jr.'s father, Martin Luther King Sr., was named Michael King, and at some point in his life as a pastor, he visited Germany, and he was so impressed that he changed his name from Michael King to Martin Luther King, and his little boy followed in his father's footsteps and changed his name from Michael King Jr. to Martin Luther King Jr., and till the day he was killed, his friends called him Mike. So that's like one of these wow. things that I, when I discovered <laughs> that, I thought, what? That's insane, that's amazing. But listen, Luther's such a big figure. I mean, it, again, it's why I devoted myself to writing this book because I thought there's so much here that affects us. For example, the idea that if you start saying we are all equal before God. So the idea that I just have to be this like religious Christian and do whatever the church tells me to do and they're the, they're the real ones that are in charge. They have direct access to God. Right. He says, no, no, you, every one of you, we have direct access to God we are responsible to have a relationship with God. We're supposed to know the scripture and walk with him. It's not just listen to the, what, what those guys tell me to do, you know, who are wearing the clerical collars. I, we are all uh, members of a royal priesthood. So he really brings that idea into the mainstream of European culture and into, into Christendom. And it's a powerful idea because if you believe that, then you start thinking, well, this is interesting. If if I owe my allegiance directly to God and not to those who are in authority above me, well, what that means is that those who are in authority above me, the duke, the prince, the king, they themselves owe allegiance to God. So we're all equal before God, which is a biblical idea, but it really had evaporated in a way because of the power of the church at that time. Yeah. You know, you tended to look at the priest or the, the cardinals or the bishops as having power 
uh, that somehow makes you like you're a nobody. You just, you know, you just do what you're told and, and whatever. Yeah. So Luther changes all that. And what it leads to is these egalitarian ideas which lead to America, right? That if we are all equal before God, then uh, we have responsibilities that we can't point the finger like, well, but he, but he told me to do this. God tells me what to do. The word of God tells me what to do. Mm. I need to be responsible before God. And so that leads ultimately you know, to our idea of religious liberty. Maybe I have a duty to the king, but if the king disagrees with what I think God is saying, I'm going to disobey the king and obey God. Yeah. You know, these are radical ideas, and these are the ideas that led to the United States of America and to freedom in the whole world. I've heard it said that, uh, that, that the Bible is the book that built America, and the Bible was unleashed uh, in large part by yeah. Martin Luther and the courage and the bold stand that he took. After writing a book like this, Eric, about Martin Luther, if you could sit down and have a meal with him today, what would you want to ask him? Oh, my gosh. That's one of those questions. What would I want to ask him? <laughs> I don't think I'd want to ask him anything. Like, I just, I just would want to delight in him because he, he really, the, the, the beauty of Luther was that he was very bound up in a religious way as a young man. You know, very, very just, and, and I, I think, you know, uh, it's kind of the nature of young men in particular to, to, kind of, to kind of be that way, but he was like that, you know, on proverbial steroids. And as he discovers God and discovers the word of God, over time, he becomes more and more free and joyful. He was a total joker. He was a total, uh, you know, uh, he, there, there was a, there's a joyous freedom to Luther's character, you know, and that has a, a downside to some extent too. But the bottom line is that he, he was just a larger than life personality mm. who he'd been freed from this religious prison. And what I realize is that this is the challenge for us as Christians always. Am I going to be a, a crimped uh, religious person who really is all about avoiding sin? Or am I going to live in joyous response to who God is mm. and what he did for me on the cross, which is going to be a, a glorious, joyous gratitude where I'm going to want to serve him with my whole being and my whole life, yeah. which yeah. can look crazy and wild to some people who have a very religious in the negative sense view. It's like, well, it's about not doing this and not doing this and be careful and, you know, make sure you, you know, read the scripture at this time and this time. And, and you start realizing one is kind of like a prison and the other one is mm. freedom. Yeah. And, that's the legacy of, of, of Luther. But of course, as I was saying, it's always the tendency of human beings, of Christians, to go back to this crimped religious yep. view. And I mean, you, you see it today where people say, um, you know, sometimes you get some pastors or whatever, they'll say, well, I don't want to, I wouldn't talk about that from the pulpit. I wouldn't talk about it. Well, we're all, we're just going to stick to religious subjects, to theology. And you think, what are you talking about? All of reality is fair game. In other words, the, the theology of the scripture is supposed to touch everything. There's nothing off limits. Sexuality, politics, we're supposed to bring the truth of God into all of these spheres. Right. And the German church uh, in Bonhoeffer's day was making this mistake. They were like, well, we don't wanna, we don't wanna say anything that might anger the Nazis or might anger somebody in my congregation who might agree with mm -hmm. us. So we're just gonna stick to the gospel. And you realize that's not the gospel. The gospel, Jesus didn't stick to the gospel. When you speak truth, 
you know, you're, you're speaking truth about anything. You know, when he calls Herod the fox, when he calls, you know, the, the Pharisees that you are of your father, the devil. He, he wasn't just sticking to John, John 3.16, which hadn't been written yet. But the point is he was speaking truth. And I think Luther helps us to understand we have an obligation to bring Jesus and the scripture into every sphere of life, yes. not to live a fearful, negative, sin-avoiding religious life, but to live a joyous life. And at the end of his life, you, you get that picture of him. He was just a, a, a loving family man, a loving husband and father, and you know, free to joke and, and, and so on and so forth. It's a dramatically different view than this, you know, pinched uh, monk who was really just obsessed with not sinning who he was as a young man. I think that the American church today could use a revival, a reformation. A is, is there any doubt? A renewal. If Martin Luther were here today, what do you think he might say to the American church today? Other than telling them to read my new book, Letter to the American Church, let me think. That's about it. No, uh, I think Luther... He's such a big figure that I can't think of him saying one thing, but I think it was his kind of, his personality that shows you a different way. It shows you like, hey, we were made for life. Uh, you know, uh, mm. the, 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 I mean, you know, Jesus, uh, when, when he says, I came to give you life and that you'd have it more abundantly. Yeah. A, a, a lot of religious Christians, they don't get that. They don't understand that joy, humor, love, uh, abandonment to God looks really different than, you know, uh, I better not screw up because God's going to smack me if I make a mistake. Yep. Luther lived that. And I mean, it's why I talk about it. I write about it because I kind of feel like th that is always the tendency for us yep. to kind of find the safe and that's Religious always the criticism view. of religion from yeah. people who are non-religious is, oh, it's this box, it's this prison that you're trying to cram us yeah. into, this little moral um, confinement space, you know? And, and truly, real religion is, like you're saying, I think, opening ourselves up to living fully before God and for God and embracing all that he has for us in a way that brings him honor and is a blessing to other people around us. I mean, actually, think about it this way. If you really believe that Jesus defeated death on the cross, you don't fear death. You welcome death. You say, that's gonna be like the greatest thing ever. And between now and then, I'm gonna be 100% free. I'm gonna speak my mind on any issue, right. any political issue, any cultural issue, because the Lord died for me to be free so I can actually talk about these things. And if somebody's bothered by it, we can have a conversation, but I'm not afraid of, uh, what if I don't, I better not say this, I better not say that. To be genuinely free, that's God's gift to us. And there's so, so many mm. of us that sort of imprison ourselves, these little religious prisons, which is the antithesis of, of what, I mean, it was Jesus himself talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and trying to get them to see that that's what they were doing. They'd that's become right. fearful and religious and rule-based. And he wanted to bring them life, which is just... It's, yeah. it's just an extraordinary thing. And it's an incredible message that we need to take today. Uh, some people say, yeah, well, that's why I don't like religion at all. It's always trying to shut you up and get you to conform. Well, listen, religion is inescapable, right, Eric? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we could also have to live in fear and bow down to the religion of secular humanism and Marxism and socialism and communism, which will shut you down and burn you at the stake just as quickly for saying the wrong thing. 
So pick your religion. I go for Jesus. I go for the religion of the God who so loved the world that he sent his son to set us free. That sums it up. That sums it up. Uh, Eric, this is awesome. I, yeah. we, we need another hour to talk uh, anymore about Martin Luther. We've got to get to your next book. Yeah. What a man of conviction and faith whose life continues to inspire and challenge us today. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.